Hello and welcome to Strong Habits, the accidentally feminist fitness podcast about all things training, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Penny Varvaridis, and this is episode 63. How are you? I'm alright, thanks. Tier 4 is a bit shit, but my mum did bring me a delivery of Christmas biscuits and satsumas today to make up for me not going round to help her bake. It's Christmas on Friday, and I don't think I have ever felt less Christmassy. But I did watch a fun Christmas horror last night. It was called Better Watch Out, if you're into that sort of thing. It was fun! You'll hate one of the characters a lot, you'll probably laugh out loud, and periodically yell at the screen. It's a riot. If you're still wondering how you can make Christmas special, why not purchase my 30-day bender? Gift it to someone or yourself the gift of movement. Nobody needs more stuff anyway, right? But a body that moves better? Gosh, what a dream. I'll pop a link in the description box if you're interested. It's the 30-day flexibility program that will help you squat better, press better, and even work towards your front splits. I have another special episode for you today. As I said last time, I have loads of special episodes for you still lined up, which I'm hoping to get out in the next five to ten days. (sighs) Wish me luck, friends. Wish me luck. I spoke to Alan Flanagan, who is currently pursuing his PhD in nutrition at the University of Surrey. Alan is the founder of Alinea Nutrition, an online education hub dedicated to providing impartial science-based nutrition analysis. We have a really interesting chat about cholesterol, heart health, insulin resistance, dementia prevention, and the best oils to cook with. Alan shares the answers to questions that you definitely have around food, nutrition, and health. We discuss how food timing can impact metabolic health and how much fibre you need every day. I learned a lot recording this, and I think you are going to learn a lot from listening. So, without further ado, here's Alan. Alan, hi. Hi, welcome. How's it going? Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, things, yeah, things are going good. Um, so I've been, yeah, it's been good. I've been productive with my research has been, has been good, thankfully, and wrote a review paper that just got accepted for publication. So yeah, there are, there are benefits. Can you introduce yourself and your work a little bit so the listeners know who we're talking to? Yeah, so I'm currently just coming to the end of my second year of a PhD in nutrition. So entering entering the home straight in January, where I'll start kind of putting together my thesis and hopefully submit it December next year. And that's based at the University of Surrey, um, which is where I did my master's and was quite taken by research. I came from a background that was very not science. Um, I did history and English as my undergrad, and then I went to law school and became a lawyer in Dublin and worked as a barrister for pretty much 10 years um, and had this interest in nutrition on the side that I thought that I might just do a course with purely kind of for my own academic interests, really, Um, not really thinking that it would go anywhere or lead to anything. So it was purely for hobby purposes, really, should we put it that way. But I, I was quite taken by it, and I was quite taken by the kind of general overlap. They're not obvious overlaps, but there are overlaps between 
the kind of analytical thinking that goes into law that goes into science and so there was a kind of an aptitude there that I was enjoying and yeah I just by the time I got around to doing my thesis for my MSc and the research that I did for that I just really enjoyed and wanted to go further into research and then a PhD opportunity came up at the university and I got offered that and jumped and then made the transition from law to full-time research so yeah it's been it's been fun it's um a fairly eclectic background <laughs> in terms of the mix that it brings me into science now but I actually think that's a positive uh, overall in terms of just having a bit of yeah different experience that you bring into a subject a different way of looking at things maybe which is always helpful um and some some transferable skills not all of them but definitely some that have become useful so yeah it's 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 i wouldn't change any part of that um and the the exact research that i'm currently involved in is looking at timing of food intake and the relationship between timing and circadian rhythms i.e these kind of biological rhythms that we have that really tie to the night and day light dark cycle um most people know they have them when they fly either east or west because that's why jet lag happens um and you but what's become of interest in maybe the last certainly five to ten years is this idea of social jet lag and how the way that we live in our modern environments in our home can somewhat mimic jet lag insofar as we maybe stay up later, we're exposed to artificial light, we maybe distribute more of our eating. And so we eat later, we don't eat until later in the day. And then we tend to eat most of our energy later in the day and in the evening. And so that's what I've been more interested in is how that actually influences human health. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the research group that I'm part of. That's what we look at. So it's, yeah, it's an exciting area. That's really cool. So, so far, what does it look like you found? What impact are we having? Uh, there's still a lot of kind of unknowns. Um, from, a, from a weight loss perspective, there probably isn't really that much of a material difference. Uh, you know, if you compared two diets with the same amount of energy and one ate at, you know, 8am to 6pm and the other ate at you know, 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. or 10 p.m., there probably wouldn't be that much of a difference. But what we're typically seeing, and this is consistent across a number of studies, is that it impacts on your metabolic health. So blood glucose control, how long blood glucose is elevated for after a meal, and circulating fat in the blood, cholesterol, these factors tend to be impacted by it independent of, of weight and weight loss. So we think that a lot of the focus in the research has been on weight loss, but there's a lot of people who now think that that's probably the wrong focus and it's more likely to be someone's underlying metabolic health as it relates to diabetes risk and cardiovascular disease risk. That's probably where these factors really have a more important uh, role to play. So does it seem like eating when the sun is up and not eating when the sun is down would be beneficial for health? Gen generally speaking, what the sun up and sun down thing, we could broadly say yes to if we were in a part of the world with a more stable uh, annual light. <laughs> 
environment. Whereas up around these latitudes, you know, if you're in the UK or you're in Ireland or you're in Northern Europe, generally, uh, you're going to have these big swings where you go from these lovely, you know, 9 p.m., 10 p.m., it's still bright June, and then you get to December and it's dark at 4.30. So it's it, there is some flexibility that goes with changing light exposure. But generally speaking, what seems to be for, for people who are aiming to be kind of otherwise healthy and, um, you know, maybe, maybe they've no interest or reason in losing weight, for example, but they just still want to think about their kind of long-term health. It seems that having a greater proportion of energy early in the day during that kind of light phase uh, would be better. And that doesn't mean, so people interpret that to mean, oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It doesn't have to be breakfast. If you look at some of the healthy kind of continental meal patterns, the Mediterranean diet, you know, the south of France, they don't, for example, tend to have very high energy breakfasts. Their breakfasts are kind of light, almost snacky brunch type breakfast, but the main meal comes in the middle of the day. Um, and so you're still having your peak of energy intake uh, earlier in the day. And by earlier, if we're putting a clock time on it, it seems to be before around 3 to 4 p.m. If people have had the kind of majority of their daily energy, that seems to be associated with more favorable health outcomes over the long term. Um, whereas we see certain eating patterns where people might delay eating, they might not actually start eating until later in the, in the day and then consume up to, you know, a quarter to a half or over a half of their total daily energy after 5 p.m. And that doesn't appear to be a good idea for multiple reasons. One is the proximity to sleep, but the other is the, in, in order for us to have this kind of daily rhythm where we just naturally get tired in the evening, we have a hormone called melatonin and it's really sensitive to light. It's primarily sensitive to light. So if you expose yourself to light, you don't really get melatonin increases. But if we expose ourselves to low light and darkness, then you would get that in the evening. And this is still emerging really in the last three to four years. But the thinking is that the closer you have food intake to the nocturnal rise in your melatonin levels, that that's what the problem is. Because that's signal from melatonin is basically telling your body to switch from daytime active eating all these kind of active processes to nighttime fasting resting and and these kind of restorative processes but they're processes associated generally with functioning in the absence of of food intake right so they're they're processes that work best when we're in this overnight fast well if someone has a massive you know 40% of their daily energy, for example, meal at nine o'clock and they go to bed at half 10, you know, they're processing that till 3 a.m. maybe. And so that association, the relationship between someone's bulk of their energy intake in proximity to this kind of biological uh, phase seems to be where the, the issue is with, with evening energy intake. And that evening energy intake tends to associate then with higher levels of body fat and higher blood glucose, blood sugar levels, and these kind of variables that add up over time to 
increase diabetes risk and stuff like that. So it's, it's part of the problem with nutrition is you're trying to tell people often who are at this point in time, completely healthy, but may have certain aspects of their diet in terms of actual dietary intake or patterns of intake that they may be fine with now. But the question is if that pattern persists for 20 years, where will they be in 20 years time? And humans aren't really very good at computing that, you know, well, I'm 30 now and I'm, I'm fine. I eat at nine o'clock every night. And it's just like, yes, but if you do that until you're 50, the likelihood of being fine at 50 is <laughs> much diminished. So um, yeah, we're, we're not good at thinking about long-term. That's super interesting. How, how much do we know that eating at night is caused by the act of eating at night versus the fact that often the things we eat at night are normally the things that do take us out of a deficit are normally more processed mm. or alcohol or snacks like how much do we know that it's actually time-based versus right so that's that's still being teased out because one thing that we do know is that this propensity to have kind of later distribution of energy often meal means that people have a much shorter duration between meals um, and that it has a propensity to tip people into caloric excess. That said, there is some research um, and enough there to maybe think that it's the time factor in particular um, where it may not necessarily just reflect poor diet quality. Um, and you can see that with shift workers, for example. Um, so if you look at diet quality as it relates to shift work, you can even see that in people nominally with overall good diet quality scores, you know, there's still this you know, propensity for, for greater risk over the long term. Now, the difficulty with shift work is it's not just a, a food exposure, you know, shift work is you're, you're not sleeping for an entire night, you know, often three to four nights back to back. So there's so many variables that go into why night shift work in particular is just not good for, for the human body over the long term. I, I'm always caveating this because I know so many people that do night shifts, whether they're in the NHS or otherwise, and I never want to be like, scaremongering on, on night shift. So it's about helping people have strategies to be able to try and, you know, mitigate these effects and, and that. So, but, but there is also a limit with how, how flexible that advice can be, because we do know that there's a big time component with night shift. So it, it can be fine for a certain period of time, but really the risk, if people have done night shift over 15, 20 years, that risk is, is much higher. So yes, yeah, sometimes it's difficult to tease out how much of this is related to diet, but of the controlled studies that are there, even when diet quality is good, you, you tend to see these pronounced kind of, particularly for blood sugar levels, you tend to see these big changes that reflects only the time of day and, and, and no other variables. And you know, there's a lot of studies that have been completely lab controlled and you're only looking at the timing variable. Um, and they, they have always shown that for blood glucose in particular, the way that people and the efficiency that they process blood glucose and respond to, to carbohydrate and food intake early in the day is way 
uh, much more yeah efficient and um you end up with kind of lower daily blood blood sugar levels and stuff like that compared to the evening and that we know that that's a time component specifically so would that mean that people with PCOS or who are pre-diabetic or have type 2 diabetes would benefit from front loading their calories in the day that, that is my kind of at this point in time with the data that we have my answer to that is yes i i think that for people with pre-diabetes um potentially for women with you know the, particularly the androgen dominant pcos phenotype where you have a lot of insulin resistance those kind of population subgroups i think could very much benefit from front-loading energy intake um whether they would benefit additionally from some time-restricted window on that front-loading kind of remains to be seen. So we have some interventions in pre-diabetes participants who uh, consumed energy maintenance diets, weight maintenance diets, so there was no deficit, um, and consumed it within a six to eight hour window early in the day and quite substantial improvements in blood glucose in HbA1c over the long term, uh, which was brought out of that pre-diabetic range, um, and other kind of important reductions in blood pressure. So there seems to be a big improvement that can be gained, uh, particularly for impaired glucose tolerance and insulin resistance. Now, what we don't know is whether that's because of just restricting evening energy intake or eliminating evening energy intake, or whether it's to do with having this tight restricted feeding window of six to eight hours. So is it that window or is it the timing or is it the lack of evening energy intake? So the respective contributions to that, we don't really know yet. The early time restricted feeding studies, quite obviously for most people in the real world are difficult to comply with. No one wants to have dinner at two in the afternoon. So, there are studies that have lengthened that window out. I generally think for people who are spending a lot of time over the course of the whole day, you know, in an, in a fed state, that there can be a benefit to trying to reduce that to even 11 hours. You know, the average in the population is 15, give or take 15 to 16 hours that people are spending in a fed state. So just bringing that back to 11 can be really beneficial. You know, so having breakfast, let's say someone has breakfast at eight, having dinner at seven, you know, or, or six to seven, for example, that's way more achievable. And then within that window, I think, yes, front loading energy to the early part of the day and having kind of high energy breakfast and lunches and a kind of relatively lower energy dinner can be something that with the data that we have in both people with normal glucose sensitivity, otherwise healthy people with pre-diabetic blood glucose and HbA1c ranges, and also with pe people with, with type 2 diabetes, we see really significant improvements in their blood sugar levels and insulin. Um, and the magnitude of that improvement tends to relate to how impaired their glucose tolerance is. So you see the biggest effect in people with type 2 diabetes, but it would be sufficient to bring someone with pre-diabetes out of that pre-diabetic range and I do think that for uh, anyone with the kind of insulin resistance PCOS phenotypes, that there would be an additional benefit for, for that as well. 
That is very cool. And definitely something that is easy to experiment with for yourself and right. play around with hours to see which hours you can eat for. Yeah, yeah. I think we we, we have, you know, there, there's a lot of cultural variation that I think is important. That's one of the reasons why studying meal patterns in humans is quite difficult because we tend to still define meals by terms like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But those terms are themselves inherently culturally laden. So breakfast to someone in the north of England it can't be equated as a meal in terms of size, composition, or timing to breakfast to someone in Naples and Italy, right? So we have huge cross-cultural definitions in the importance attached to various meals, and the timing of them, what foods are likely to be eaten at those meals. And it, it just, it means that sometimes it can be difficult to get a clearer picture. And a lot of researchers now, for example, are using a neutral term like eating occasion, right? Because eating occasion can cover anything, meal, and then it's, it's, it doesn't have these additional attachments to it. So, you know, the patterns of intake in a population do vary and, and they can vary if a population is quite multicultural then patterns of food intake will vary within the same population you know so if, if you're looking at the uk population again you, you can't assume that you know families from say um pakistani muslim backgrounds are consuming in the same pattern of energy intake and timing of energy intake um as people from like a white British Irish background, so there's there's loads of and it, that's the fascinating stuff about about studying meal patterns in humans is you you are adding in all of these very human factors like cultural considerations and otherwise, but it also means that it's very co complicated to try and get like a consistent picture and it uh, yeah it's 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 a it's a fun area to study but a complicated area. Yeah, it's very cool. I want to sidestep now and ask you a bit about cholesterol and mm -hmm. heart health. So firstly, people hear a lot about good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, but mm -hmm. what does that mean? So the it's funny because I, I, sometimes I see the good cholesterol, bad cholesterol thing be dismissed as, oh, well, you know, it's an oversimplification. It, it is, but it also isn't. Um, so bad cholesterol is very established to be um, a risk for heart disease and not just a risk, but, but causes the processes that lead to plaque in the arteries and ultimately a whole host of cardiovascular complications um, and potentially mortality. Um, but it's bad, not because the cholesterol, so when most people here, I think the, the most important thing that people in the population need to differentiate between and, and I guess need to hear is the difference between dietary cholesterol and cholesterol in the blood. So cholesterol in food that we have, eggs, for example, they are high in dietary cholesterol, but we don't really absorb that cholesterol. And so when people are talking about bad cholesterol, I think a lot of people in the population misinterpret that in, you know, oh, well, eggs are bad, for example, because they're high cholesterol food. But that's actually not the case. So dietary cholesterol uh, is present in foods of animal origin to various quantities, we don't absorb it particularly well, 
Um, but it's not what we're talking about when we're talking about bad cholesterol. Um, what we're talking about generally in that sense is cholesterol in the blood. And cholesterol is important. We need certain minimum amounts of it. We don't need that much, but we need certain minimum amounts of it. And because cholesterol is a fat and fat and water don't mix. And if anyone is at home wanting to do an experiment, just take some olive oil and pour it in a glass of water and <laughs> see, see how, or pour some balsamic vinegar in the oil. You, you, they don't mix well. So in order to transport that cholesterol around blood, which is you know, water essentially, it needs a vehicle, basically a carrier. And it's the, what we're talking about when people refer to good and bad cholesterol is actually the carrier, the transporter for that cholesterol around the body. And we've two types. We, we make cholesterol in the liver and we have a type of transporter known as LDL, that's low density lipoprotein. And that will carry cholesterol to tissues in the body for the body to use basically as energy or for making hormones and otherwise whatever jobs cholesterol does. And then we have another type of cholesterol that then brings that used up cholesterol back to the liver to be recycled. The type that transports it out to various tissues is what we call the bad cholesterol. And the reason it's bad is because if it's not able to deposit that cholesterol and get it out of circulation. Or if we simply have too much of it and we're producing too much, well, then we end up with an abundance of this cholesterol floating around and it can't offload and get, get it out. And, and when that happens, we end up with it continuing to float around in the blood and eventually it finds its way through the artery wall into the kind of subartery space and deposits that cholesterol there. And then we have this immune response, inflammation, all this other stuff. And eventually these plaque accumulates and we, we build that plaque up in the arteries and then blood vessel or, or the uh, flow of blood through the arteries gets obstructed and all this stuff. So that's the bad cholesterol. The good cholesterol is the transporter that, that brings that cholesterol back to the liver to get re recycled. But the thing is, while that's good in a general sense, we, we now know it's not as good as we once thought. That isn't to say that it has a negative effect. It's just to say that it doesn't have as good an effect that we previously had hoped that it would be this kind of great protector. Um, it, it does have these beneficial roles, but there isn't really good evidence that targeting it and trying to change it deliberately will make much of a difference. So it's brought all of the focus really back to the bad cholesterol because we now have overwhelming evidence, um, just a huge body of, of, of research going back for 70 years that shows that the more that that bad cholesterol is elevated in the blood, the more that someone is at risk for heart disease. And the longer that it's elevated, the more that that risk is. And the reason that's important is because it can often start to climb really from our teens. Um, so you can have people that have are otherwise completely healthy. You know, they are normal body weight. They're incredibly physically active. They don't necessarily eat that badly. Uh, they don't smoke, they don't drink a lot and they dropped out of a heart attack at 50 and no one can figure out why. Um, well, historically, you know, no one could figure out why. And particularly if you're like of Irish or Scottish kind of Celtic ancestry, this is likely to be someone, you know, your, your, your uncle Joe that, you know, was 
hale and hearty at 50, but bang, heart attack. And, and that's because genetics has a huge amount to do with determining someone's cholesterol levels. So, you know, it's this, what they call this silent killer, because this process of this plaque building up in the arteries is happening independent of body weight, independent of other factors, if that cholesterol is high enough. So we really want to be mindful of that. I think it's good for people to start, unless they have a known genetic condition, start, you know, getting cholesterol checked from, you know, 30 onwards in, in health checks. And, and if it is high, then do try to modify diet and lifestyle to bring that down. And if diet and lifestyle doesn't work, then really all of the evidence now suggests that the, the sooner that someone initiates pharmacotherapy, the better that they will be over the, over the long term. So, but obviously we're kind of focused on the, the diet and lifestyle stuff. So what can people do diet and lifestyle wise to impact this buildup of cholesterol in their blood? So the, the biggest driver of increased cholesterol, LDL cholesterol is saturated fat in the diet, animal fat generally, but saturated fat in particular. And the, the reason for that is because the way that we pull cholesterol out of the blood is impaired with high saturated fat intake. And the question of reducing saturated fat is uh, also a question of what you replace it with and how heart healthy someone's diet is going to be is going to depend not just on reducing saturated fat to less than 10% of energy, for example, give or take the Mediterranean diet, you know, could be six to 8%, for example. Similar patterns are seen with the kind of traditional Japanese diet where their total fat intake is lower than the Mediterranean diet, but their composition of fat intake is quite similar and their saturated fat is maybe five, 6% of total energy of fat. Um, and the rest is unsaturated fats. So the best adjustment that someone can make is replacing sources of saturated fat with sources of unsaturated fat. And that generally is going to mean uh, more oily fish, olive oil, nuts, seeds, and that's the best substitution that someone can make. So if someone does have a diet that it's, 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 it's less common for, and sometimes when I say this, I kind of am thinking in my head, who does this anymore? Because, because all of these additional factors, people have started to consider like the environment, even if people don't you know, have any kind of moral or ethical issues with consuming animal produce or foods of animal origin, they may be significantly reducing their red meat consumption for environmental considerations or even eliminating it altogether. So it's less common now amongst people interested in health and fitness to have a very high saturated fat diet unless they've been seduced by the kind of low carb keto carnivore mania and they've gone down that rabbit hole. Um, if they have gone down that rabbit hole, I really try and pull them back out of the rabbit hole before heart disease sets in. <laughs> but um, so yeah, replacing, you know, if people eat a lot of fatty meat, bacon, butter, and these food sources, replacing that with more oily fish, more lean meats or poultry, non-fat sources of dairy, you know, Greek or lower fat sources, and 
thinking about say replacing butter with like a flora or a polyunsaturated fat spread, consuming more extra virgin olive oil, rapeseed oil, nuts, seeds. These are all foods that particularly olive oil and nuts, um, we have really good data on their positive effects on reducing cholesterol levels, but also reducing hard endpoints like reducing cardiovascular events like heart attacks or whatever or stroke and then secondly i think so replacing saturated with unsaturated fats is kind of number one number two dietary fiber intake trying to get that above 30 grams a day fiber directly lowers cholesterol as well it, it basically helps us recycle cholesterol and actually eliminate it from the body and when we don't have fiber in our diets or we have low fiber diets the body will still recycle cholesterol, but when it gets to that end stage of needing to eliminate that cholesterol, there isn't any fiber to bind to it, and it's just reabsorbed back to the liver and back into circulation. So fiber, so whole grains, legumes, all of this kind of good stuff. And then foods that are kind of dark pigment, like so blueberries, blackberries, uh, dark green leafy veg, contain not necessarily nutrients, but these kind of bioactive food components that we also know seem to have a benefit on cardiovascular health, not necessarily specific to cholesterol, but improve like vascular blood flow and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the trifecta of a heart healthy diet is unsaturated fats from marine and plant sources, dietary fiber, and kind of polyphenols and bioactive food components from, you know, dark skinned vegetables and fruit. So in terms of heart health, and I imagine probably other health generally, mm -hmm. it sounds like being a pescatarian who eats lots of vegetables is probably the healthiest way to go. Is that correct? It's, it's, it's not wrong. <laughs> it's, um, it's definitely one of the, the healthier or healthiest kind of dietary patterns, um, you know, it would be a common dietary pattern to see in some of the blue zones diets where people live to, you know, quite commonly be around centenary or certainly over the 80 mark. And you would see that in a couple of the blue zones diets in Sardinia, for example, or Costa Rica, where really they, the majority, they do um, have a lot of dairy intake, but they don't necessarily have a lot of meat. They would occasionally during the week, but it's not a meat-based diet. It's a very, it's a diet very high in fiber, vegetables, fruit, fish, and then yogurts and cheeses. So yeah, I think broadly speaking, kind of pescatarian, vegetarian dietary patterns tend to be associated broadly with a lot of health benefits over the kind of over the long term yeah and are some oils better to cook in than others so this has been a big focus um yeah it's still a big focus really uh, the idea of oils being kind of quote rancid or toxic as people would would describe them I think that's more of a food industry hangover from a period through the kind of 60s and 70s and into the 80s, um, where it was common for industrial foods to have a high quantity of trans fats and 
categorically, we absolutely know that trans fats have really negative effects on the human body and on cardiovascular health. Um, and, and what trans fats are for people listening is fats in nature, whether they're particularly if they're unsaturated, will have a certain chemical configuration. And during the process, industrial process of, of um, making these fats generally more have a have a stable shelf life and stuff like this they used to um, expose it to a chemical process that would actually change that configuration so the body wasn't able to differentiate that this was not a a, a natural fat and would incorporate it into you know cells and and it would, would just lead to a whole host of really negative negative consequences but we really started to get that picture quite clear in the early 90s um, and by the 2000s you have places that have either just flat out banned the use of trans fats in the food industry or in the uk the food industry voluntarily agreed to reduce and remove trans fats from the food supply so you know, that's, that's one thing. It would have been much more common for people to get a lot of these rancid fats if they were, you know, constantly eating fast foods where things are being fried in a deep fat fryer and the oil hasn't been changed and it's gone rancid. For people cooking in the home, I think there's pro probably a bit of undue attention given to this issue. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about the smoke point of different oils and say, well, I, I don't want to cook with olive oil because it's a low smoke point. That's true, but we know from research looking at the effects of heat on olive oil, for example, extra virgin olive oil, that the polyphenols within the olive oil protect it from the heat. So you can cook with olive oil just fine. I think when it comes to are some oils better that, to cook with than others, really I think what it boils down to is the nutritional composition of the oils themselves. And yes, there are some oils that are better than others. So, you know, if you look at some of the unsaturated rich oils, other than say olive oil, you'll often see sunflower oil on the shelves in supermarkets. It's just not great nutritionally, it's fine, but it doesn't have the same fatty acid profile as rapeseed oil, for example. Um, so I generally think that, you know, rapeseed oil um, and olive oil or extra virgin olive oil are, are probably nutrition wise in terms of their fatty acid composition, their omega-3s, omega-6s, omega-9, they've all these kind of good fatty acid profiles that some other oils that you would get on shelves like sunflower or safflower oil don't have. Um, and that's the reason why I would generally recommend people to go for those options. But it, it's less to do with the idea that, you know, sunflower oil is some sort of kind of toxic oil in you know infused into the food supply to poison people it's really it's really not yeah. thank you for clearing that up one more maybe this is also a conspiracy around oil uh question for you is is it safe to reuse oil if you've cooked something in it like if you've made some chips and then you've got your oil there like do you pour it away can you use it again what do you do? Um, I mean, that would, oh, that's an interesting question. I think A, it would depend on the oil. B, it would depend on how hot you got it in the first place. Uh, I think we'd need like more of a food scientist <laughs> to answer that. But I mean, 
I guess maybe erring on the side of caution might mean just like use fresh oil the next time. Yeah. This was what I thought. I was making donuts with my friend virtually a few months ago and I was wondering where I was going to pour the oil when I was finished and my friend told me that she always reuses the oil and I didn't think that that sounded like it was it was the best mm. idea but I didn't have any evidence for why I thought that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah th th this is where this is where food food science as opposed to like nutrition science is gets gets really interesting um, and I think yeah I think we'd need a food scientist to actually answer that because they could they probably know like the effects of various levels of heat relative to the type of oil used and the, and the fatty acid composition. But yeah, I think I would err, certainly if I was doing this myself, I think I'd be erring on the side of caution. And once, once I had used an oil once to heat everything up, I probably wouldn't use it again. I get, get fresh oil. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you for that. Do you think in terms of diet and health, the sorts of interventions a person might make to improve their heart health would be the same or different to the sorts of things that people might do to also improve their health in other areas so actually i think i think that's a great question because the kind of research on diet and brain health massively overlaps with cardiovascular disease and it really does appear that what's good for the head is good for the heart or, or vice versa. Um, it's incredibly consistent. The nutrients of particular benefit for the brain, long chain omega-3 fatty acids that we get in oily fish, for example, polyphenols, um uh the effects of vitamin e which we get in like nuts and vegetable oils all of these nutrients that appear to be quite protective against dementia and alzheimer's incidents are also the exact same nutrients that are protective against cardiovascular disease incidents so yeah i think sometimes that's where the overly reductionist way of thinking about nutrition can somehow cloud the big picture um and reductionism is is useful and we need it um but the idea that you would have a certain set of nutrients that are only good for the cardiovascular system and do nothing for anything else is is it just doesn't really once you step back from that reductionist perspective really kind of makes sense and so it's really in reality it's not that surprising that a lot of these nutrients overlap and the dietary patterns that associate with heart health are also the dietary patterns that, that associate with, with brain health. Um, so yeah, for me, I think the biggest overlap is, is probably between kind of cardiovascular health and brain health. Um, and the, not just the nutrients, but the foods providing those nutrients are very consistent across those two outcomes. That's really cool. With dementia and brain health, how much fish oil is recommended to make a difference? So the, the epidemiology, like the long-term studies of diet and dimension and fish intake and omega-3s um, is interesting because it seems to suggest that around a minimum of a gram a day uh, is, is where the benefit is, is really seen. 
um, that's over the long term. So it's different to kind of supplementing later in life. Uh, but what that tends to correlate to is give or take around 12 ounces a week of oily fish. Um, so as much as people kind of give out about public health guidelines and nutrition guidelines, you know, the advice that we have is currently to consume two servings, two portions, you know, of, of, of oily fish a week. And, and that's grounded in, in that evidence where we tend to see this minimum effective dose of around two meals a week, give or take. And there doesn't really seem to be more of a benefit to consuming four meals a week. Um, so that seems to be the sweet spot around give or take two, two servings a week. And it averages out to around a gram of, of EPA and DHA, which are the two uh, omega-3 fatty acids that we get in oily fish, it tends to average out to about a gram a day of both of them. And this is generally in populations, again, who are consuming this as a, as a fairly consistent aspect of their diet, you know, over 10, 20 years, um, 30 years and some studies so and that creates a disconnect then to some of the intervention studies where they've gone right well let's just give people an omega-3 fish oil supplement you know and see if it protects the brain and th those studies have been mixed but the problem with those studies is it depends on the stage of, of cognitive impairment that the participants are already at and what's emerged from that research is actually once people are at the stage, it seems, of dementia. There's very little that can be done to, to, to reverse that. It's, it's, in effect, irreversible. So you can manage this, the pace of deterioration, uh, and that's it. So, so that's made people in that area realize, actually, it's prevention that we're, we're really talking about, and it's intake 10, 20, 30 years prior, that is probably going to have the biggest determinant of that. Um, and yeah, there's other issues with some of the interventions as well. They're probably all too short because DHA in particular, it takes two and a half years to turn over in the body. So if you do a 12 week study, you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not gonna see any impact of supplementation possibly in that time frame. So yeah, people have raised question marks over the efficacy of, of fish oils as supplements. I do think that efficacy is there um, when you really kind of tease out some of these issues in the data. I think where it becomes important is for people following exclusively plant-based uh, diets or even people who are generally either omnivorous or vegetarian, but just don't like fish and they, they won't consume oily fish just out of personal preference. I think then at that point, you know, consideration of supplementing with that, that kind of give or take around a gram a day, just as essentially a preventative slash protective, almost insurance policy, so to speak, if you're not consuming oily fish, I think that I think it can be good, and generally people are amenable to that. Um, I have seen more pushback in the kind of vegan community in the last kind of more so really in the last two years. There's been this funny shift in that community where a few years ago there was just all of this acknowledgement of okay, well, you know, there are some nutrition 
considerations for adopting a vegan diet. There are some nutrients that are going to be more difficult to get, some that will need supplementation. And there seems to be this just general, like complete uncontroversial acceptance of that. Now there seems to just be in this increasingly militant tone of like, this is the most perfect diet ever. And there's, there's no one needs to supplement anything. And it's kind of like, I, I, I think we need to maybe temper that um, type of, of rhetoric. But I see that a lot with omega-3s. People are like, well, I consume loads of omega-3s from plant sources. Um, there's no real good evidence that we convert the plant omega-3 to EPA and DHA in any meaningful quantities in humans because we've, already, we've always... Um, historically and, and over evolution consumed a direct source of these fatty acids through the diet. So we, we, unlike other mammals, we don't have the ability to synthesize those fats in, in, in the body that well. We, we have the potential to do it, but the conversion is less than 10% mostly. There's a slight upregulation for people that don't have direct intake of it, but it's it's minuscule. So I think as an insurance policy, I still think it's worth taking for people that are you know, fully vegan or, or follow like a plant-based diet where they're not consuming direct sources of EPA and DHA. I do think it's worth supplementing with a, an algae oil-based EPA DHA supplement. Do you think the algae-based supplements would need to be much higher for for a therapeutic dose if you look at some of the intervention studies um using fish oils in patients you know that have already diagnosed heart disease i think it would be difficult in that context but that's really specific i think for people that are otherwise you know just you know whatever 30 35, 40, and they're looking after their health and they eat well, otherwise they're following a vegan diet and they've got one of these supplements. I, I think it's very easy. If I remember some of the brands that I've looked at with the milligram amounts of EPA and DHA, I think it would be really easy to get that one gram of day because it's one gram combined of EPA plus DHA. Um, most of them seem to have kind of two to 300 milligrams of EPA and kind of four to 500 milligrams of DHA. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy to get that one gram a day average with, with those, with those algae based supplements. Yeah. Where ALA will largely be from say, you know, walnuts or their um, flax, chia seeds or chia seeds or everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, generally those kind of nuts and seeds, will, as uh, so certain of them in particular, will be quite high ALA, um, but algae is EPA and DHA. Um, and it's where, it's where, it's where oily fish themselves get the, uh, get their own. <laughs> it's what they eat. <laughs> that is very useful. So then at least there is an option for vegans to still get. Okay. So th thank you for answering all of those questions. That was super helpful. I have one more request of you. Mm -hmm. at the end of each episode I like to ask my guests to share a random fun fact do you have a fun fact for me hey I think so um I was actually thinking uh, kind of after you you gave me the heads up kindly at the start of the show um and given that it's been somewhat science focused um 
for me, this is this is kind of one of the cooler things I've ever heard, which kind of shows how the predictive power of good science. So you've probably heard of black holes, right? Yes. Have you seen one? I don't think so. Right, because no one really had. 2019 last year, 20, last year was the first year a black hole had properly been photographed. And you can you can see it, you can Google the photograph of it. But the reason it's amazing is because in the 30s, Einstein had set out all of the equations that described in mathematical terms the existence of a black hole. So he'd never seen one, obviously. No one had, but he had actually set out all of the mathematical conditions that had to exist for one. And his theory was that this did exist. He also set out all of the conditions that would show if he was wrong. He was like, well, if this, then I'm wrong. If this, then I'm wrong. But on paper, all of his conditions were saying this exists. And it took till 2019 then to actually get a photograph showing exactly what he had written on paper in mathematical language, you know, 70, 80 years before. So I, I thought that was vindication for, for science and also a, a ludicrous testament to <laughs> the capacity of his mind. No, that's a great fact. Gosh. He predicted the, a black hole 70 years before there was even one any objective proof that they existed really that's incredible yeah that's definitely bonus points for maths <laughs> isn't it yeah <laughs> um, so yeah that's crazy so i'm gonna go and look for that photo now so i can say that i've seen a black hole mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time today if people would like to find you and learn more science about nutrition mm -hmm. how can they do so just really I've, I've three main outlets um, for social media. I, I only operate one account um, for my sanity. <laughs> so that's on Instagram as the at nutritional score advocate. Um, and so people can find me there. I have my own website, which is alineanutrition.com. That's very science focused. Um, it's mostly nutrition professionals or coaches. Um, and we do kind of a weekly review of a study in nutrition um, and kind of like webinars and stuff like that. And then I also write for uh, Sigma Nutrition and work with Sigma Nutrition with Danny Lennon. We produce a lot of educational content over there. So we do a monthly podcast and we do written statements on various topics of interest in nutrition so they they're the three three main sources excellent thank you very much i will put links to those in the description for anyone who wants to go and click and see thank you for your time today this has been great this was really good i really enjoyed it um hopefully that's uh, yeah hopefully it's been useful for listeners um yeah thanks for having me penny thank you Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. It really means the world to me when you guys share the show. If you don't hear from me before Friday, have a lovely Christmas. And if you're in tier four, I hope it's not too sad.